0: Good morning. How are you guys doing? Oh, man, we struggle with this every time. Let's try again. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Woo! Good work. Uh, if you are new here, we are excited that you are here. Um, if you are a regular, we're excited for you too, but not quite as excited. Uh, no, we are excited that you got any, all of you guys are here. I hope you guys enjoyed uh, the students up here and uh, celebrating with them after VBS. Most importantly, we hope you got some adorable photos and video of them. If not, that's okay. First service is a dress rehearsal. Same for me too, so just come back next service and you can get it. All right? My name is Christian, and I am the middle school program director here at Eastridge, and uh, I have the opportunity to share with you guys today. I have actually… I, I did the math. I have been doing youth ministry now for 15 years, and now some of you are doing the math. I started when I was seven. Um, <laughs> I've been doing youth ministry for 15 years, and over those 15 years, I have seen a lot of amazing things happen. And when Pastor Duane asked me to share today, he asked me, hey, I know you've been doing youth ministry, I want you to share, kind of like, and teach people and, and instruct people to know the why youth ministry, why kids are important. And I thought, you know what? Like I'm half tempted to just like pull up a bar stool, sit down and just spend the next 30, 40 minutes just sharing stories over, the, over my tenure with youth because there's just so many. And I think it's a compelling way to just talk about, hey, this is what I've seen in action while I've been doing it. And at the same time, I also felt this kind of tension as like I just wanted to pull out my soapbox and stand on it and tell you all the reasons why things are terrible, and why, why there's injustice, and why kids are, are always not, you know, considered what I think they should be, and how parents struggle with their kids, and all these other things. And I had this, like, kind of tension between the two. Ultimately, I decided that I wanted to answer a question that I was asked a few years ago, and the question was this. What keeps you coming back? Why do you keep doing youth ministry? I've never worked in full-time youth ministry. I've always worked as a volunteer. I've been at Eastridge now. I'm going into my fourth year, but it's just a part-time position. I I have a full-time job, a very demanding full-time job. And so I've always been asked this. Why do you keep doing it? Why do you keep coming back? And I thought, you know what? Maybe that's the best way to start, to explain my why, why I keep doing it, what's kept drawing me back, and hopefully that's compelling to you guys as well. In my experience working with youth, I have found that students, and by students, I'm going to say a couple different words today, I'm going to say students, I'm going to say youth, I I firmly believe that students from kids' ministry to middle school to high school, that whole group, all collective, I think this applies to everyone. I personally have worked with all three groups, I currently work with middle school groups, so I have a kind of a heart for all three of these, but when I say this, I believe that students are the most underutilized, underestimated, and underchallenged group in the church. I think we forget about them most of the time. They're cute, or they're smelly, or we don't know how to connect with them, and so we just don't do anything with them. And I think today, hopefully you're gonna find, is that the Bible throws that completely on its head, flips it over, and says, no, actually, they should be the exact opposite. We should be empowering these kids to do crazy, cool things. The problem is that students aren't the easiest bunch to work with, right? They're difficult, and oftentimes I think adults, because of that, don't provide the assistance or the guidance or the encouragement that we should. So I hope today that I leave you believing that students are worth it, to know the why, why students are worth it. We've got lots of people in here with blue shirts that kind of got maybe a little glimpse of that this last week, and I hope for all of the rest of us that we see that too. So I don't know, I've got, I think I've got some students in here, uh, middle school, high schoolers, maybe some adults in here that play video games. I'm not great at video games, but I do like sports video games. and. Uh Spe- uh, specifically Madden and uh, NBA 2K. And in those games, if you're not familiar, I'll, I'll give you a little uh, lesson in this. You can create a player, right? And so when you create your player, you make it everything you are not. So when I create my player, I am tall, I am muscular, I am super fast. And then you get like graded on a scale of one to 99. And so like you move, you're like, I'm going speed, 99. I'm going height, 99. I'm going, you know, and you just move it over, so you become this like ultimate player. And I think about that with youth ministry. Like, if we were gonna create this this ultimate youth pastor, there's a few things, a few bars that we would slide, right? We would move hipster to like a good 85, like you need to wear a flannel, you need to wear skinny jeans, and you need to have like glasses, right? The ability to play music, you have to be able to play guitar, scooting that into the 90s, right? And then there's some things that would be pushed to the 99s, right? They've got to be funny, 99. They've got to be compelling, 99. They've got to be outgoing, 99. And they have to be able to eat weird things, 99, right? And these are the things that you would do, and like out would pop this like crazy like, here's this youth guy. This is like the stereotypical one. And the funny thing is, is once again, I'm really none of those. And I want to tell you a story to kind of highlight that. Uh, when I was in middle school, seventh grade. Uh, my parents went to parent-teacher conferences. Do they still do those, you guys? As parents, have you been to parent-teacher conferences? As students, have you been to those? Yes, fantastic. They're lovely. Uh, My parents went once, and this is why. So we went, and I was middle school, and they're like, great, we're going to meet all your teachers. And I was like, this sounds terrible. And they go to my first one, and you sit down, and they're like, the teacher sits next to me, you know, sits in front of me, and she's like, what, what period are you in? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm in, I'm in period two. She's like, oh, yes, 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 so many kids. And you know, flip, flip, flips. And she's like, and this is Mr. and Mrs. Yeah, that's my parents, Mr. and Mrs. Plover. Oh, okay, great, great, great. And you can see her kind of filtering down the thing. And she gets to my name, and she's like, oh, Christian, yes. He's a pleasure to have in class. And I'm like, great. And my parents are like, anything else? Nope, he's just a good kid. Okay, on to the next one. What? Sit down, they're like, Oh, yeah. What what period are you in? Oh, fourth period. Oh, yes, of course. We have so many kids. Flip, flip, flip. Uh, Who is this? Mr. and Mrs. Plover. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, Christian. He's a pleasure to have in class. Oh, great. Anything else? Nope. He's doing good. He's just a good kid. And then my parents get, we go through all eight of them or whatever they are, we get into the car and my parents look at me, I remember my mom looking back and she goes, do any of your teachers know you? I'm like, no, they have no clue, like, if they don't know who you are, pleasure to have in class, never met the kid before. Um, And so that was the last time my parents ever went to parent teacher conferences. And that's who I was, I was just this quiet, unassuming kid. I used to do this kind of game in high school, which sounds really bad now, but like back in the day I thought it was kind of, I don't know, this is inside my brain, it's it's scary in there. I would go and I would be like, hey, I'm not gonna talk to anyone today. Not because I don't like people, like, but I would just be like, I bet I can get through today without saying anything to anyone. And I would go one day, and then I'd go back the next day and be like, man, I bet I could put two days on this. I go two days. And I was like, I wasn't like a, a loner, like I played sports, I knew had friends, I did things, but I was just super good at like not having to say much. And what I would do is, instead of talking, is I would watch. So I knew everyone what they were doing. I'm like, Oh, he likes her, she likes him, oh they did that you know, like I could hear all of that and saw all of that stuff going on. But I was just a super reserved, quiet guy. My favorite thing, uh, my favorite story, this wasn't just just in high school, it, it continued, is when I came here to Eastridge for the first time, I started dating Danae, we had met, and we, started, we dated for two years and then we got married, and um, probably for the like, first five years, first three years of marriage, kids kind of ruined it for me a little bit, and two years, and two years of dating, what I would do is I would come and I would sit right about back there, like three rows in, and that was my spot, and I would sit there, and inevitably there would always be somebody, a couple, and they would turn around, during the turning greet, and they'd be like, it's a single 20-something male. Like, like I was an endangered species. And the, and the wife would be like, you could just see she would get excited, and she'd be like, oh, we're so glad you're here, happy. And the husband's being like, calm down, we're gonna scare him, you know? And she's like, he's like yeah, yeah, really good to meet you. You know, you know, like trying to be chill. And I could see that they're just kind of watching me, right? Being like, what is this guy doing here? We, we don't see very many of these. And um, I would sit there, and then sometimes I would play with them, like, th- this is so bad. Sometimes I would sing, because then they would be like, oh, okay, he's a church kid, like, okay, that's good. And other times I'd just stand there like this, like, I didn't like singing at all, and they'd be like, oh my gosh, he's never been to church. Like, you could just see them processing this, as they're kind of like taking little looks back to see how I'm doing or whatever. And inevitably what would happen is Denae would come and sit next to me at some point during the service, and then, you know, like, everything changed, you could just see them be like oh my gosh, that's her husband, like, I can't believe that, and then afterwards they'd turn around and be like, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't, you know, I hadn't met you, or whatever, like, yeah, we met three times already, but that's okay, Um, and so, like, but that was me, like, I just, I'm comfortable in the back of a room, this is not necessarily my happy place. When I started youth ministry, my first, I had done kids ministry, um, in high school, i done led games for Juwanis when I was a high school leader, but I went to college, I went to a school called Trinity Western University up in British Columbia, Canada, and I joined a program called Youth Extreme, I don't know why, it's a, it, it's a catchy title, I decided I should do it. And Youth Extreme was this, Youth Extreme was a program for inner-city youth. For those of you that don't know much about Vancouver, BC, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. East Vancouver, where we worked, uh, is actually the poorest zip code in Canada. Since the 1970s, it's been considered the poorest zip code in Canada. The average uh, individual income is about $19,000. And that sounds like maybe a big number to you, or maybe a small number to you, wherever you're at. But to give you a comparison, the average house price in Vancouver has gone down. Good news, it's gone down. 1.1 million. That's the average house price in Vancouver. So you've got people making 19,000, housing costs 1.1 million, you can see the issue, right? So most of these people live in low-income housing, otherwise known as the projects. And this is what we would go and do on Friday nights, this is back in the day, we would call them the night before and say, hey, we're going to come pick you up. And they'd be like, sure. okay." and we'd go drive to their house, their apartment, their wherever, pick them up, take them to a church, and just try to get them off the streets for a Friday night. And I did this uh, for, for four years. Oh yeah, let's go to the next slide. I'll show you. This is young me. Um, that's young me, and these are two of my guys. So we got a couple of us leaders here. I'm the guy in the black shirt there, and then the two guys there. Most of the students were what they call First Nation students there, and uh, and I, I kid you not, this is Abu and Mufasa. That is their legit names, Abu and Mufasa, and we did everything that we could to help these kids. Right. But it was completely outside of my comfort zone. I come from the Happy Valley bubble. I am now an inner city, poor zip code in Canada. And what we would do as youth leaders is we gave them these business cards, and they had our names on them and we had our phone numbers on them. And we gave them to them and said, Hey, if you ever get in trouble, give us a call. You know, most of these parents weren't engaged or whatever else. And he said, If you get, you know, don't drink and drive. You know, I know you're 12, but don't drink and drive and, you know, do these other things. And I'll never forget this because this is. Something you can't forget. It was about 1 a.m. and as a college student, I was on my way to bed, not quite there yet. And I got a call. And I got a call and it was Mufasa. And he says, Hey, bud. I'm like, Hey, how's it going? What are you calling me? He goes, Hey, I stole a car. My mom's drunk. She won't come pick me up. Can you come pick me up from the, the local police department? I'm like, Not in Happy Valley anymore. All right. And I drove down at like 1.30 a.m. I grabbed a buddy. We drove down at 1.30 a.m. And we picked up this kid and took him back to his house. And sure enough, mom's plastered and can't, you know, doesn't even know what's going on. And that was kind of my deep dive into youth ministry to start. And I went, man, what am I doing here? I am a complete fish out of water. This makes no sense. And over the time since, and over those last 15 years, I've spent time with, with unchurched, with churched, with high school, with middle school, with poor, with rich, and over the all of those different groups, I've seen the same sort of patterns. Ultimately, kids are kids. They just they are who they are. They have different outcomes and up, different upbringings, but kids are kids. And I think no matter what group that is, like I said before, they're underutilized, they're underestimated, and they're underchallenged. I had somebody ask me this question uh, a while ago, and I did not have a good response, and now I do, so I wish I would have had it then. But they said, hey, what can a teenager really do? And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, oh, I don't know, kids are just so dumb these days. What can they do? They're lazy, they, you know, they just sleep, you know, like, Hunter, what can that kid do? You know, like, what can kids do? And I just was so like taken aback, I was just like, I don't know, yeah, the kids are good, and I just had a terrible answer. But I think what I found is that the Bible says a lot about it. And what can kids do, specifically what can teenagers do, is a ton, monumental. And so what I want to do today, I've got one more picture coming, this is a big group of us from uh, Youth Extreme as well, you can see some of those other kids. This is uh, like 2005 probably, a retreat we took them on, which was super fun. But what I want to do today is, I want us to dive into the Bible a little bit and figure out what, how did God use youth? How did God use students? And the first one I want to talk about is this guy named David in 1 Samuel 16. We're going to be jumping all over the place today because I got a lot of different verses for you. If you've got your Bibles, great. You can try to flip with me. If not, I've tried to get most of the words up on the screen for you. So we're going to start here in 1 Samuel 16, and this is, we're talking about David. And it says in verse 6, When they arrived, Samuel saw Elab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to show up and trying to figure out who's going to be the next king. And the first son pops up and is like, Man, that guy looks the part. That guy looks like a king. And he goes, No, that's, that's not him. That's not the one. Verse 7, Verse uh, 7, oh yeah, that's where he says don't consider his appearance. In verse 10, Jesse had seven other sons pass before Samuel. So he's like, here's the first one, here comes seven more. Let them keep coming through, roll them through, roll them through. Nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. And he says, the Lord has has not chosen these. And he goes, there's still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending his sheep. So there's this youngest son, one that he wasn't even considered, like, there's no way that guy would be anything that these guys are interested in, right? And he goes, you know what? Samuel goes, I'm going to wait. I'm just going to hang out. No, I don't need to see. I'm going to stand up. I'm just going to wait. You go get him and bring him back here. And sure enough, they do. And he says, when he comes back, he says, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Yep, that's the one I want. Yep, I want the smallest. I want the youngest. That's the one I want. So he's anointed, and one chapter later, God puts him to work. One chapter later, God has him defeat a nine-foot giant, Goliath. And that's not all he does. What else does he do? He goes on to, oh, only become the greatest king of Israel, an ancestor of Jesus, and ultimately, he becomes a man described by God himself as a man of his own, after his own heart. Yeah, David was broken and did bad things, and wasn't perfect, and that's another sermon for another day. But ultimately, God used this teenage young person and turned him into this huge, powerful, not just mighty ruler, but mighty for his kingdom. Joseph, Jacob's favorite son. Jacob had uh, 12 sons. Joseph's the 11th, Benjamin is the, is the youngest. So once again, another young guy. And at a young age, if you guys remember, he starts having these dreams, right? And he has these dreams of, of being in power and these dreams of ruling over his, his older brothers. And of course, his older brothers are like, "Yeah, I don't want to hear any of that, right? And in Exodus, or I mean in Genesis 37 verse two, we hear this: that Jacob is sold, or that Joseph is sold into slavery at the age of 17. So we know he's been having these dreams. These visions of being in power, these these almost desires of being in power at a young age, right? Because he's sold into slavery because of those at the age of 17. And what does Joseph go on to do? Oh, he becomes the ruler of Egypt and prepares a nation for a famine, right? God doesn't say, hey, you know what? I think we really need an economist on this, someone that's an expert in farming. He goes, no, I'm going to give a kid a dream and then let's figure it out from there, right? The Old Testament isn't just the, the only book that's filled with these. Let's go to the New Testament, Uh, How about the teenager who becomes the mother and ultimately responsible for the Son of God? Yeah, that one. Most scholars believe that Mary was visited by the angel Gabriel at the age of 12. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, we we see that that encounter. The angel went to her and said, greetings, uh, you who are highly favored. Isn't that crazy? Like, just think of a 12-year-old now. I love this picture, like a 12-year-old girl, the angel's there, and they're like, hey, God's like, out of all the women in the world at this time, I'm going to pick you. Yep, that's the one. You're highly favored. That's who I want. And she's standing there, and and it goes on, the Lord is is with you. In verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Like, I think you kind of have to read that with a little bit of, like, teenage attitude, right? Like, oh my gosh, like, why are you here? Like, I can't, be, you know, like, I can't believe, like, ah, oh, what do you want me to do? You know, as, as she's looking up at this angel, and the angel goes, you know what? I want you to have a baby as a virgin. His name's going to be Jesus. He's going to be the son of the most high. Oh, yeah, and his kingdom's never going to end, and, and I, and only way uh, only a teenager could do this, right? Because if, if you were married or if you were older, you would come up with all these excuses, and no, oh, I've got this on this day, and there's no possible way that will not fit into my schedule. I cannot take on that responsibility. No, Mary goes, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word be, uh, to me be fulfilled. She goes, eh, all right, sounds good. Like, isn't that only a teenager could do that? Be like, hey, I want you to, be able to do all these things. You're going to have to do all this. You know, your son's going to be the son of God, you know, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, yeah, sounds about right. Cool. Let's do it. You know, like, and God could have picked anyone, but he picks this teenage girl to do this. But this is my favorite. That's, that one's pretty good, but this is my favorite. While the Bible is not specific and there's no given scripture on this, at the age of Jesus' disciples. I think we have some clues to figure out how old Jesus' disciples are. And we find that in Matthew 17, and that's when Jesus and Peter go to Capernaum. And let's catch up with them there. We are in uh, Matthew 17, and we're starting uh, in verse 24 here. It says, after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay temple tax? So they're saying, hey, each person owes two coins. Temple tax, all right? And they're going to try to put him on the spot and say, hey, doesn't your, don't you, aren't you supposed to pay tax? And Jesus kind of like deals with Peter and he, and he gives him some, asks him some questions and teaches him a lesson and, you know, give to Caesars and all that kind of stuff. And that's great. But ultimately he tells him to go catch a fish. <laughs> all right, Peter, what I want you to do, go catch a fish, open up his mouth, you're going to find the coins, go pay the dude. All right, sure, why not? So he does that. And at the very end, it says this, take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. So who shows up at Capernaum? Jesus and all of his disciples. Who's being required to pay the temple tax? Jesus and Peter. So not everyone's being required to pay the temple tax. And I think we can learn what this means from Exodus 30, verse 14, because in in that book, it says, the temple tax was only applicable to to those that were 20 years or older. So most likely... The rest of the disciples are under 20 years old. And I love that this part, this this section, this story is only captured in the book of Matthew. You guys remember who Matthew was? Tax collector. Wouldn't a tax collector tell a tax story, right? (laughs) It's amazing. So Jesus is walking around with Peter. We know Peter from another story. We know Peter's been married. We know that Jesus has healed his mother-in-law. So we know Peter is probably over the age of 20. All these other disciples, 19 or younger probably. James and John had the nicknames Sons of Thunder. Are you telling me a middle-aged man is named Sons of Thunder? No, like these are kids, right? At other points, Jesus talks about the little ones and he's talking about them, right? So what we've got here is we've got Jesus as our kind of like our first big youth group leader, right? And if it sounds right. So he's got a bunch of high school kids. He's got one adult leader, right? Peter, who's like in his early 20s. That's the only type of people you can get to deal with with high schoolers most of the time. And Jesus is 30, starting his ministry. Like, it's it's so on par. It's like exactly how things work today. And what ends up happening is Jesus takes this youth group and he ultimately uses them to go out and reach the world, go out and change the world, right? The Bible is riddled with examples of God using youth to accomplish great spiritual feats. And that is why I firmly believe That if Jesus showed up today at Eastridge Church, showed up, he would come through those doors on a hoverboard. (laughs) Maybe not, but in my story, he definitely does. He'd come through those doors on a hoverboard. Maybe he wouldn't even need the board. Maybe he would just be hovering. That would be even cooler. (laughs) And he would take a right. He would look at us in here, and he would be like, man, those adults, they're great, but they're stiff, and they're boring, and they're stuck in their ways. And he would take a right, and he would go and hang out in the kid's wing and he would check on all the kids, and I think ultimately he would make his way down into the basement, and he would find the youth, he would find the middle schoolers and the high schoolers down there, he would find the teenagers, and he would say, hey guys, I, I got a mission, let's do it. And he knows that they would be like, yeah, let's go. Up here, maybe not, we're full of excuses, but down there, he's got people that are ready to work for him. If God was so intentional about including youth and utilizing them for his mission, why does it feel like as a society, we at the very least are underutilizing them and probably more accurately, just ignoring them? I think it's a perspective issue. Our priorities are out of whack. Let me tell you this story. Uh, just happened on Friday, I was meeting with some guy from work. He's, uh, he's a great guy, he, he's uh, for my work, he's a screen, he own, owns a screen printing company. He has got three boys and he was telling me, hey, I'm coaching my boys in soccer. I was like, sweet. I'm like, you're coaching all of them? Yeah, I'm coaching all three of them. I got, each one of them has two practices a week, and each one of them has a game a week, so I've got six practices a week, three games a week, and I go, holy cow, he goes, yeah, my goal is to coach them all through the eighth grade, so i got 20, uh, what is that, 27 seasons of it, and he's like, man, I've, I've just made the hump, I'm halfway, like I'm just over the, over the edge, and I was like, whoa, that is really cool, like, good on you. I love sports. I grew up playing sports. So this is not an indictment on sports at all. I grew up playing sports. My dad was a coach in sports. I have coached sports myself. I love sports. They teach us so many great life skills. They teach us teamwork and and hard work and, and, and chemistry and bonding and all these things. So sports, don't get the wrong message. Sports are fantastic. But I think culturally we encourage our kids to play sports multiple days a week at the expense of other things. I've had parents throughout the years come and tell me this all the time. Hey, my kid can't come on Sundays because they got practice. Hey, my kid can't come on Wednesdays because they got this. My kid can't come to summer camp because they've got baseball camp. You know, all, all, time and time and time again. And if I had to like, I, I have no statistical proof, but if I had to guess, I would say sports are the most common reason that students miss church stuff. It just happens. And I've had these conversations with parents as well. When they're young, when they're like fourth or fifth grade, they're like, man, my kid's really working. I think he's going to make the classic team. And so we're just working on that. I think he's going to make the classic team. Cool, great. Uh, You know, then it's like they get there and then it's like, man, I think my kid's really pushing hard. They've been working with the high school coach, you know, a little bit early. They're getting in, they're doing camps. I think they're going to make the high school team. Cool, great. Then they're in high school. Hey, my kid can't come to that. That's all right. Oh, yeah, we're just hoping that they get a scholarship. You know, even a small school would be cool. You know, like we're kind of working through that way, right? And we're always, they're kind of always hoping, always, always pressing for the next thing. A survey in 2016 by Harvard School of Public Health found that 25% of parents with high school students who play sports hope that their student will make the pros. If they make under $50,000, that goes to 40% of parents hope that their students make the pros, right? So, when a parent has hopes for their kids, guess what, the kids know that, right? But here's the problem. If you play high school basketball, if you you make it, and that's even challenging, but if you make it and you play high school basketball, you have a 3.3% chance of playing college basketball. If you make college basketball, you have a 0.03 chance of playing in the pros. 0.03 chance. And some of you may be smart and know numbers and go, Christian, basketball is actually the hardest sport to make pros in. And you would be right. So let's look at soccer, 0.07%. Hey, I hear football's easier. You're right, 0.08%. So you've got somewhere t- between 25 to 40% of parents hoping that their students are going to go pro, and the reality is, is less than 1% of them are. Tom Ferry, the director of sports and society programming with Aspen Institute, notes that parents have become more and more more aware of the long odds against their offspring becoming sports professionals. They don't necessarily steer their kids away, though. Instead, he says, a lot of parents today see those odds and say, well, I better get started early with my kids. It's a priorities and a perspective thing, right? Here's some more numbers for you. Barma study indicates that nearly half of all Americans who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior do so before they reach the age of 13. That's 43% of kids will accept Jesus before they turn 13. 64% of people that will make Jesus their Lord and Savior will do it before they turn 18. And that's just one study. There's other studies that show that number is actually higher, maybe closer to 80, 85% of people who accept Jesus do it before they turn 18. And it's not just research firms that highlight the importance of teaching kids about Christ at an early age. Let's look at Proverbs 22.6. It says this, start children off on the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Teach them early. It's going to stick with them. It's important. I don't want to lose you guys all on, on stats and numbers, and I love stats and numbers. I, I, my degree's in business. I love stats and probability, and so I spent hours diving into this, and I had to cut a bunch of the numbers that I wanted to share with you. But let's keep things simple. 0.03% versus 84%. What number's bigger? As a society and as a parent, what one do we apply more resources towards? So young people are more likely to come to faith. Furthermore, God has a history of using young people in incredible, important, and monumental ways and in my opinion, that's what makes student ministry the most important ministry within the church. Up for debate. But to me, that is what makes student ministry the most important ministry within the church. So what does that mean for us? Well, first, parents. You guys are the first line of defense. So let's see what, it, what God calls us parents to do. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. We've heard that before, right? Verse 5 is popular. Love the God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Beautiful verse. Lovely verse. Great verse. If you got a tattoo of it, even better. You know, perfect. But I think we do this so often with the Bible as we read this key verse and we go, that's great. Shut. And we don't actually read the next part. And the next part is just important, if not more important. Verse six, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Here we go, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your forehead, write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. Yeah, you better learn how to do this, but you are charged with doing everything possible to impress that on your children as well. It doesn't say, you know, like, oh yeah, when it feels good, you know, like, no, at all times, at home, while you're traveling, at night, in the morning. Simply put, the Bible tells us parents that we are called to be the number one spiritual influence in our children's lives. Number one. What it does not say is it doesn't say this. You do your stuff, and send your kids to youth group twice a week. Make sure they're there on Sundays and Wednesdays, and then they're good. It doesn't say, hey, you know what? You do this stuff, and then work some extra hours, make some extra money so you can send your kids to private school, because they'll do it for you. It doesn't say any of that. It says you do it every time. It is so important. Do everything you can to impress the importance of loving God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength. And as the number said before, we've got a short window, right? There's this thing called the 4 to 14 window, and that, that's where they think somewhere close to 64% of people are going to make that decision for Christ. Some of you are going, cool. Parents, sounds like you guys got a lot of work. And you're going, cool, I'm not a parent. Or you're like, I'm a parent. My kids are already out of the house, and I screwed them up, so no take you backs. Can't do that one. <laughs> and uh, that's fine. That's great. But I saw this this week, and this is, like, my new favorite, like, saying. Like, I don't, I'm not a bumper sticker guy, but I may get a bumper sticker of this. This is fantastic. It said this, in Christian service, there is no unemployment. In Christian service, there is no unemployment. Luke 10, verse, uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 2, he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. God has enough work for everyone. Don't just sit back and watch others. Look for a way to help with the harvest. We are all called to do this, right? When I met Danae, she was in kids' ministry. And I remember Saturday nights we'd sit on the couch and she'd be like, I don't have enough people. Like, I don't know how I'm going to fill this hole. And that, this week, VBS, she's sitting on the couch going, man. And not to say that it was awesome, it was a great week. But she's going, man, I wish I had more people. I got so many kids. We had to close down registration. Man, I just wish I had more people. During my time, I spent time, uh, seven years with Young Life. During that time, I saw more leaders go than leaders come. Man, I just wish we had more people. If we had more people, we could go reach more kids. In my three years here at Eastridge, I can count on one hand the number of people that have pursued me to be like, hey, is there anything I can do to help with, you th- with the ministry? Is there anything I can do to help with those kids? Student ministries, kids and youth, all involved. Statistically, we just found out, is the most rewarding field to harvest. it's just plentiful. Yet there are so few workers for the number of kids that there are. If God can use me, He can use you, right? We started with that. I am not perfectly designed for for this gig. I don't know if any of you have done this, I, like I said, I, meant I, was, in, uh, I was in business, uh, and I, I took a class called organizational behavior, and we did this thing where we uh, did a personality test, maybe somebody did this in psychology, called Myers-Briggs, maybe some of you have just done it, because now Facebook pops up with quizzes all the time that you're supposed to take. Some of you know what kind of animal, spiritual animals you are, and what your favorite color, whatever. So maybe you've done this uh, in your spare time. But I did this, I took the test, and I've taken this test for several times, and if, you, if this helps and you've done that, I'll show you my, number, my letters, if it makes no sense, just Ignore the last thirty seconds. I am an ISFJ, Introvert, Sensing, Feeling, Judging, and, they, and after you take it, you can they give you a little like readouts, and they tell you you know who you're supposed to marry and how you're supposed to work and what kind of jobs you do and you know whatever else. And this is what it says about me. It says, an ISFJs usually prefer to work behind the scenes and like to receive recognition in a low-key way without being uh, required to present their work publicly. They want to feel that they have fulfilled their duties, but do not want to be thrust into the spotlight. So that sounds like I'm really cut out for this, right? Like to work behind the scenes, low-key, don't want to present their work publicly, and uh, don't want to be thrust into the spotlight. Perfect. (laughs) I want to tell you two stories about uh, two kids that I've worked with over the years. Uh, One of them I met when he was a... Actually, I met both of these when they were freshmen in high school. But one of them, uh, the story starts when he was... Um, we were at a small group, and we we ran this club, Young Life, we ran this club, and we did these these small groups called campaigners. We were at campaigners, and I was feeling so out of the bubble. This kid was like obnoxious and loud and popular and just like ran the show, and I'm like, this this is not my type of kid, right? This is not, we are not going to connect. And things were not going how I wanted them to. We were like two hours into it. We haven't even started our study, which once again, my personality, that drives me nuts. The other leader's like, oh, let's go to WinCo. I'm like, no, can we just do what we're supposed to do? And so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, okay, this kid shows up, and I go, hey, man, how's it going? Like, he, j- he just sits next to me, and he goes, how's it going? And he goes, fine, good, good, good. And I remember watching him for the next 30 minutes or so, just interacting with other places. And this is where my high school days of just watching people, I think, help. Just watched him for the next 30 minutes, and I went, something doesn't feel right. Just something's off. It doesn't feel right. So he came back and he sat next to me again. I, I'd just been sitting at the same table the whole time. He came sat next to me again and said, Hey, man, I might be wrong, but something doesn't feel right. How, how are you really doing? And we ended up having this conversation where he told me what was going on in his life. He ended up telling me that he had some major health issues, some major health stuff that was going on. And I was the first person that he had told that, that it was happening. He was driving himself to the doctor, parents didn't know. And, he talk, and we talked about this, and we talked through what was going on, and for the next two plus years I was the only person in his life that had any clue what was happening. And i call and check on him, and, you know, how's it going, or how's it really going, you know, things like that. He had, parent, he had problems with his parents, and so Denae and I, Denae was, was just as welcoming too, I said, hey, we've got a guest bed, if you ever have any problems, just, just come on over. And he, most of the time, I'd find out that he, like, slept in a car or, like, whatever, or slept at Friends. I'm like, come on, dude, just come over. So a couple times, he finally did. You know, he's, he came over and hung out and, and spent the night with us. And to me, it was like, I didn't really do anything. Like, it wasn't, like, this great program I put on or anything, right? Like, I had asked him how he was doing, was willing to talk to him, and had offered a, a room that I wasn't using. I was on a golf course about two years ago, and uh, up in Canada with some friends. I get this call, and and his name pops up on my caller ID, and I go, "Uh uh-oh, like, this isn't good, like, he's in trouble, like, what has he done? So I answer it, and he's like, dude, I'm engaged. Oh, sweet, that's awesome. Hey, man, I am actually in Canada, and this call is going to cost me a fortune, so can we talk about it, like, in a couple days? And he goes, yeah, 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 just before you go, you're going to marry us, okay? See ya, bye. And I'm like, (laughs) What? And so, of course, like, I call him back, and I'm like, dude, I'm really excited. That's really cool. And he goes, yeah, I don't want anyone else. You're going to, I want you to do our wedding. I'm like, All right. I'd met his wife in middle school, or in high school as well. She had come. And the cool part about that is, is I didn't know her super well, but I sat down with them preparing for their wedding, and they, they said, hey, do you remember that time that you talked about how God loves us, and you had just had your daughter, and you're comparing it to love? And they kind of recited my whole, my whole spiel. And I'm like, you remember that? I'm like, yeah, of course. Yeah, as soon as we heard you do that, we knew that we, want you, we wanted you to do our wedding. Are you serious? I was like 20 years old. Like, what the heck? Like, okay, cool. And I had the honor of, of officiating their wedding this last month, and it was just this amazing experience. And it wasn't because anything crazy that I did. It was just because I asked one question at one time. Hey, man, how you doing? No, really, how are you doing? At another freshman in high school that found me after he graduated college. He found my email on LinkedIn, which is amazing, good for him, and he sent me a message, and he said this, I remember when you picked me up and took me to get food a couple times, and we're just there to listen. I also appreciated our friendship and how you cared about me. I really watched, this is the the cool part for me, I really watched, and now I look to help people younger than me like you helped me. Like I said, I hope you're doing well, man, and thanks again. All I did was take him to lunch a couple times and say, hey, how's it going? And he, however, that must have been impactful enough that four years after graduating college, he sat down and said, you know what, I need to find that guy's email address. I wonder if he's on LinkedIn. Find him, found me, and decided to send me the message. This summer, I will preach three times up here. It's been awesome. I've enjoyed it. I've been a guest speaker at Trout Creek Bible Camp for the week, and as you know, I officiated a wedding. And I debated long and hard about sharing these stories because the last thing I want to do is make it about me because that is not what it is. Like, in fact, if that's what it is, if it's about me, then it's a huge problem because I'm only one person. But what I hope is that it encourages you, any of you, all of you, that are on the fence about or having any doubts about being qualified to work with, to minister, to disciple kids, that you know that there should be no excuses that get in the way. God can use anyone who's willing, and I think we're all called to do it. My, one of my favorite chapters, in the, or one of my favorite books in the Bible is Jeremiah, and I'm going to go through it quickly. Um, I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to summarize it. If you've got some time, I challenge you to go back and read through it because it's amazing. But in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1 through 17, God's going to call Jeremiah to be a prophet. And I don't think God's calling me to be a prophet to the nations like he was him. But he, we've got some of the same kind of like thoughts and answers of this, right? So God says, hey, uh, I'm going to use you. And, and Jeremiah's another young dude, right? He's a teenager. And Jeremiah answers like, like I would have answered. He goes, no, you picked the wrong guy. Oops, sorry, God, screwed up, not me go to the next Jeremiah. It must have been that guy. You picked the wrong one. I'm too young. I don't know how to speak. I'm not qualified for uh, what you're asking me to do, and I'm scared. I think all quite reasonable responses when you're called to go be a prophet to the nations, right? Nope, no thanks. And here's God's response, and this is what keeps encouraging me and what I keep coming back to. He goes this, God says, hey, I made you for this. Hey, you're a part of my plan hey, I will give you the words. Don't worry. You can't speak. Don't worry. I'll give you the words. Get ready. Stand strong. I'm with you. And ultimately, let's go. And Jeremiah does it. Some of you guys are coming off a week of VBS where you're maybe feeling this kind of weird feeling, this weird tension of like, that was terrible, and I kind of want to do it again. Like, and welcome to youth ministry. Most of the times... Every Wednesday or Sunday, I go, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? This is going to be terrible. And I leave going, oh, I want to do it again. That was amazing. I want to encourage you to continue. Youth ministry is not a one-week thing. It's not a one-time thing. It's an all-the-time thing. If there's anything that I've learned in my years of, of, of working with students is this. You will be greatly rewarded for your efforts. Not every day. In fact, the day in and day out, it's really hard and kids are tough and they say mean things to you and you feel dumb and inadequate and all these things. But when you look back and you get the opportunity to marry some kid or you get an opportunity to get an email from some kid or you get, you know, stories about how you've impacted kids' lives from the little things you've done, then it's all worth it. Parents, now's the time to engage your students, right? Especially those students coming off VBS. Like, they've just been given a little glimpse of of, of who they are, right? Of who God is. And let's, let's shower them with just the grace of knowing who Christ is. Continue to teach your kids to love, right? Love God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength. If you are willing to get involved as a parent if you're willing to get involved as a teacher, if you're willing to get involved as a volunteer, if you are willing to get involved as snack ladies, yes, we have those, and they play a very important role, if you're willing to get involved with whatever you do, I think that you will find two things. I think that you'll find that there is no group of people more ready to come to Christ. There is no group of people, 18 and younger, our students, our kids, no group of people in this church more willing to come to Christ. And I also think that you'll find that there's no group of people more willing to spread the gospel. Kids are amazing. No ambitions. Hey, did you hear what I found out? God loves you. When's the last time like you told a coworker that, right? Never. But like a kid will just straight up go to a stranger and be like, God loves you. Cool. Kids, there is no group more willing and ready to come to Christ, and there's no group of people more willing to spread the gospel. So why do we focus on young people, right? That was the question posed to me to share with you. Why do we focus on young people? And I'm gonna leave you with this. I think the better question is, how can we not? How can we not? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, Lord, I thank you for, I thank you for our youth, Lord. I pray that we would, we would love on them and that we would care for them, that we would feel the pressure, that we would feel the purpose and just know that, that, that students are here that we need to love on them. We need to share the love of Christ with them, God. We've got this window, that this opportunity, and Lord, I just pray that you would instill in all of us, that you would call all of us to help out in whatever way we can, even if we think we aren't qualified, or we aren't made for this, or we aren't designed for that, God, that, that that you would use us in whatever way you can, because we know that you want to use our youth. And Lord, I pray for the youth in this church, that they would be, that they would, they would feel empowered, that they would feel encouraged, and God, that they would go out and do amazing things, that you would use them in a powerful, powerful ways. In your holy name I pray, amen.